Hello and welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. We're going to talk about game design today because we think game design is cool and worth talking about. I'm Rowan. And I'm Blue. And today we're going to talk about traversal, that is to say how we travel across games worlds as opposed to moment to moment movement in situations such as combat. And I think we're going to move right into our first game because I think this is something that very much has to be talked about in context. You'll figure it out as we go along. I hope so anyway. So our first game is Infamous Second Son, the 2014 Sucker Punch developed open world game featuring a main character who can absorb various powers and uses them to navigate and liberate. Seattle specifically is the whole game, I think? Yeah, that's right. I only got to play through the opening hour or three and have the base smoke power. You got to play through and experience a few more of the powers. Is that about right? That's right. I think erring on the side of safety, I will say that I didn't get the final power, which is concrete, but I did get the second two. Your base power is smoke, your second power is neon, and your third power is video. And it's a weird thing to talk about those powers, in terms of movement, but all of those powers change the way you move through an open world game. And I guess that's also worth saying, um, yeah, it's an open world game that has a lot of the genre trappings of open world games, such as liberating areas from control of an opposing force and collecting all sorts of knickknacks. And so having great movement in an open world game is really important because you have to do a lot of navigation to get to all the places. This is also an urban style open world game, so it's not as hilly, foresty. It's very vertical with buildings, skyscrapers in certain places. You get a lot of height off of just traveling upwards on a building where some of the powers allow you to just run up the side of walls and then glide out to where you want to go. And like trying to make the horizontal and the vertical feel fun and quick is in my opinion, one of the main challenges of the game. I think it mostly pulls them off. I would definitely agree. Like, I only got to having the smoke power, and I really enjoyed most of it. So I believe that other powers are a bit similar, but at least the smoke power has two core things that it wants you to interact with, which is cars, which if you jump from one, you get a large, large amount of height, and vents, which if you go through one, you'll end up at the top of a building with an extra boost to height, which lets you then traverse a large distance from there. That was always fun to do. I always enjoyed finding event, getting in there, popping up, and then taking a very long travel to my destination by the air. The other powers are a little bit similar in that regard, right? Similar, yeah. So with Neon, you get the ability to just run up walls. And so the order you get them is Smoke, Neon, Video, Concrete. By the time you get Neon, you are kind of used to seeing buildings as just, okay, where's the vent or where's a car nearby so I can get above it. Immediately getting Neon, you get this freedom to just run up a building. And one of the first sequences as you get Neon is to engage in a chase sequence. And that's a really cool feeling of just going, oh, wow, I can do all this movement that I didn't have before. I used to be kind of stopped by a hard wall and need to find the vent or you know find a way around the building now i can just go straight up over it that's really neat so that's neon's really great for just free running across the city running into a wall running up it running over it and then you get video video is again like they're very good at making you realize wow this was a missing component from my movement one of the core aspects of video is when you jump off of a high well when you jump at all but 
particularly high areas, video gives you wings that help you glide. And you don't realize until now that with smoke and neon, what you got was these, like, you put your hands down in this Iron Man pose and you kind of hover. And you think you were gliding because you're covering more distance than you would if you were just running. But you realize how slow it is when you get the video wings and you can just glide across massive distances and over most buildings. Talking about this, it's sort of this, like, progression of expanding your range, but sort of going past your limitations, I think really works well well for an open world game because a it's hard to get like a good sense of progression in these games sometimes and b like as you get further in these games you tend to want to go from a to b a lot quicker since you've seen a lot of the in between as you progressed and so that sort of system lets you just speed up how you get everywhere without diminishing the sense of space that is already created and made for you it's very important I feel in an open world game like Infamous to make you feel like the city is big and expansive. It's part of why you're playing it in the first place, to be in this giant sandbox and be able to do whatever you want to do in this space. It's not as easy as that. The enemies in the game do actually get quite challenging and just running into a pack can be quite can actually halt a lot of your like forward progress through an area but the movement really helps to just evade them go around them go above them and uh i don't really have much to say about concrete concrete doesn't feel like again with the disclaimer that i don't think i played very much with concrete if at all but concrete didn't feel like it added much to movement specifically and it added more combat repertoire for punching through the heart because the game escalates as you go through it every time you get new powers you know you get new enemies, new kind of roadblocks that try to impede your progress. Concrete felt like an answer to just, oh, this is what was slowing you down? Well, just run through them now. That's what it felt like, at least to me. And one of the nuances that you were talking about before the episode was that you can't just change your powers at will. You have to find a resource to swap them with. And so what I like about the vents is that they help you pay attention to the world. So you go like, oh, I see a vent. I can use that to get to the top. And that doesn't go away. It sounds like later on, it just changes just to rather than looking for the specific objects to interact with you're looking for the different ways to trigger your new powers so then you can use the best form of movement to get to where you want to go yep that's right so one of the things that i started doing was swapping between neon and video specifically for movement purposes with neon it's really good it, it okay let me start from the other side. With video, as I said, you get the wings and you get this amazing amount of horizontal movement and you can boost yourself using satellite dishes on top of certain buildings. Just dash into it with the video power and you get broadcast out of the satellite dish into the air. You gain a lot of height and you can just glide to where you're trying to go. So I, what would happen, I would notice is that I would look out for those like satellite dishes and if I could find one, I would, there's almost always a video source nearby. Walk up to it, swap over video, use the satellite light uh, dish to fly effectively to where I'm trying to go. And if I didn't find one and felt like I was going to be running across large areas of just like low buildings and stuff, I would look for a neon source, swap over to that because it, I really enjoy just free running across the city in neon mode. You get this weird floaty running fall thing where you just turn into swirls of light. It looks great. They did. They really did a good job with the effects on neon, I feel. It's a gorgeous game and it feels like one of those power types that is almost like, oh, we've got a new piece of hardware. Let's use this power type that lets us play with this thing. And then they found uses for it. It probably wasn't that. That seems a bit cheap to say, but it feels a bit like that as a consumer, at least. I, I can imagine that 
there definitely was a point where they were, you know, maybe they had locked in that they wanted Neon as a power already and they were playing with the visuals and went, hey, that's a cool visual. Do we have something that does that? Or like that makes sense for that to be the effect for? I could imagine that they found a design mechanic from seeing a cool effect. I don't know that that's the case, but it's definitely one of those things that could happen in that order. It's not hard to believe. But yeah, I definitely feel like success in Infamous is very early on. It's really good. Like even before you actually get a power, there's this good sense of weight and momentum to how the main character moves, which not every open world game nails that like very basic movement. And then as you get more, it seems like that weight and presence still maintains despite the fact that your movement just escalates incredibly as you progress. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about what Infamous Second Son does that's kind of cool and unique. And I guess we should just kind of contrast that very quickly with a bit more of a typical open world design so in i'm trying to think of a a good contrast game here like grand theft auto maybe you know your primary method of traversing the world would be getting in a car and driving around a city block it's not bad and some of it can be quite cool if they build the environments right and you have ramps and shortcuts and stuff like that but I personally always feel like traveling is a bit of a chore in those kinds of games. And with Infamous Second Son, with the powers and having to think about how I'm moving across a world, having to, as you said, look out for the vents while you're using smoke powers. That helps make the act of moving more engaging, more interesting. It's a lot more active. I mean, driving is a sufficiently active enough thing that people play whole games about driving, did you know? But often in open world games with that, feature it's not as strong as perhaps it needs to be in either level design or mechanics it's always a joy to use your powers in infamous to navigate even at a very early point in the game and it's that right balance of not being too difficult like if you were to throw in the movement of a lot more traditional 3d platformers it might just be too much effort to go from a to b all the time like it might be you just want to just get there instantly whereas infamous has this nice balance of being easy but being like active it doesn't ask too much from you in terms of precision right like you can be fairly loose with how well you hit the vent and you'll just be able to go up the vent as smoke i was very surprised how loose you can be with the smoke dash to trigger things it's very nice and permissive yeah that's the that's a good word there permissive with how loose you can be with a lot of your actions to trigger the movement reactions because infamous doesn't really want to ever punish you for bad movement it just wants to give you those great highs of flying through the air like movement isn't the core succeed fail mechanic of the game which is kind of a shame because it's quite good and I didn't connect with its combat as much, which was its main pass-fail mechanic. Yeah, they definitely start quite hard and just throw a lot of enemies at you and expect that you know how to meet out your health slash damage and like slowly chip away at a large group of enemies. I I think they were too afraid of, well, maybe not too afraid. I think they were worried about not providing enough challenge with the amount of movement that you have because you can easily run circles around one enemy or a small group of enemies. So they didn't want you to have that freedom, too much of that freedom when you were supposed to be tackling a hard area. So they just threw lots of enemies at you so that you barely got any time to catch your breath, to find your bearings. You are almost always being shot at. And that that gets hard. It gets hard to deal with. And it's a really interesting design struggle. Like when you've got great movement, what do you build around that? And in Infamous's case, it builds more around the combat than it does the movement. So to pull back the curtain a little bit, 
Usually when we make our collection of five-ish games, we usually like to start off with a very typical example, and we thought that Infamous would really neatly suit that, but it doesn't actually fit the typical open world formula as much as maybe we had thought, given its emphasis on powers and such. I think it fits the open world fine, but I think its movement and traversal options aren't as typical as we anticipated. Comparing to the other like open world major games like Assassin's Creed and Grand Theft Auto, it's pretty drastically different. Like just the sheer amount that you can move at all is on a fundamentally different scale to those games. So maybe we should establish a bit more of what we're talking about here when we talk about traversal and, and moving through a game world in the context of the of this episode. Uh, so what we wanted to highlight in this episode are games that have a you know, relatively large space and game world for you to, to traverse, for you to travel through, for you to get from point A to point B. It's not as simple as just walking down the street and you're there. You actually had to think about how much distance you want to cover and what the best way to do it is. We wanted to pick some games that did this a bit more interestingly instead of just get in a car, drive it there, ride a horse, climb a building. And sure, there may be the aspects of just, yeah, we want to go from point A to point B on the road. What's the fastest way to get there? Or we're going to climb this building and, you know, typical grappling hooks. Actually, I don't think we're using any kind of normal climbing in our list here, but you get the idea. Where there is this open world, you are concerned with getting from point A to point B, and it's not just walking. How do you make that more interesting? A lot of games is just adding this interesting layer, this complication, this thing that draws a bit more attention to the game than, than really the basic level of it is just you're just holding down a direction and your avatar, your character moves. Can you make that more interesting? So we feel we felt that Infamous Second Son did a bit of that. The movement was sufficiently interesting where you had these options, where these options can change as you play the game, as you choose to use different powers. How does that influence the way you travel? And does it do it in an interesting way? And we, we that's why Infamous Second Son was there at the beginning. And next, we're going to talk about Gravity Rush, which sort of covers some of these ideas in similar and different ways. It was a omnidirectional falling superhero game developed by Sony Games Studios Japan in 2012. So while Infamous is primarily maybe about movement, even though Gravity Rush on the surface sounds like it might be more about movement, it's really more about understanding space, I guess. Would you agree? Absolutely. You don't have as big of a quote-unquote city hub area in Gravity Rush. The the town that you exist in in Gravity Rush is much smaller than the Seattle that you have to explore in Infamous Second Son. It's extremely tiny compared to it, although it's worth saying that um, it did come out originally on Vita, and it was a very impressive Vita title given its size and scale, but when compared to the larger PS4 era open worlds, it can seem a bit smaller, but in contrast, it's a lot denser perhaps than some of these worlds. Yep, so the big comparison slash trade-off is that what it lacks in scale and size, it makes up for in what I would call nooks and crannies. And just before we go too far, we should maybe talk a little bit more about um, the main character's powers a little bit so she can change where the ground is per gravity so she can fall in any direction is the best way to describe it and all the aesthetics of your momentum and things make it seem more like falling than flying even though in a mechanical sense they're more or less the same thing but because of this you are constantly trying to like work out where is up where is down where am i in relation to things because you keep shifting where your gravity is it 
sounds a bit more disorienting than it actually is. Although it's still pretty disorientating. Yeah, it's it's still a bit disorientating, definitely. But I think the fact that you are fully in control of the gravity at all times helps you to kind of understand what you've done in most cases. And in the cases where you really do confuse yourself, you don't have to know where normal ground is to turn off your gravity powers. It's a single button press. Yeah, single button press. You deactivate your gravity shift. And there is a small terrifying moment where if you do this, you start falling into an abyss. But you actually have so much time, even in that situation, to orient your camera upwards and turn on your gravity powers again. Or even just tap the gravity power button to just hover. To just hover, that's right, absolutely, yeah. Very rarely are you in complete danger here, and even... So your powers have a timed meter. After the first one or two upgrades, you'll almost always be able to just, when you see it going low, fly up vertically a little bit, let go of your power, drop till your power meter resets, and then just keep doing whatever you want it to do. It's a limitation by technicality as opposed to by practicality quite often. And this limitation makes you pay more attention to that resource, pays more attention to how far you are from where you're trying to go or look around and like notice that, oh, there's that. I can just land there real quick. It's close enough. I don't lose that much time. You know, that kind of thing. And it makes you try and be efficient with your movement. If you could just use this power completely freely, which essentially you can, but these meters make it feel like it's special, which means that you sort of think about, oh, what's the best angle to go to this place at? I want to go this way kind of thing. Yeah, you don't just send yourself into the air to the point where you can't see like like where people are ants and then I'm just going to fly across. the. You don't do that. You actually stay relatively close down to the city if you're trying to go over it. Sometimes you're trying to go under it. A lot of the time you're going under it. Actually, that's one of my favorite things about this game is that because you can fall omnidirectionally and the game has to be designed around being able to traverse the game world in any orientation more or less, it means that every angle of the game is interesting to explore. And some people say every angle, they mean like every mechanic. But in Gravity Rush, I really do mean like actually every angle geometrically. Yeah, walking upside down So it's a city kind of just floating in an abyss and walking upside down on the bottom of it is so interesting. There's so many small secrets like I don't I can't even call them secrets because you're just you were really expected to explore that area at some point. There's hundreds upon hundreds of gems waiting for you to grab underneath which you'll use to level up your powers far beyond the amount that you ever need them for the game. And doing that collection is just always fun. Like Gravity Rush has a bit of an issue where you've got this great movement mechanic, but the game doesn't really know what to do with it for like structured progression. But just wandering this world and collecting stuff is immensely satisfying because navigating and observing this space is just a joy to do. And that's a lot of praise for Gravity Rush so far. But there are some limitations even with Gravity Rush's super freeform movement. I personally don't like Gravity Rush when it tries to do linear tunnel sections, of which there are some missions that force you into relatively enclosed, like they're still actually pretty big spaces, but they're, you know, this long section of tunnel with obstacles along the way. And the idea is yeah, that you have to fall through the tunnel 
and avoid those obstacles. Yeah, the game isn't well suited to traditional like platformer style levels and things. It's very much for open spaces. And that's why I say the game doesn't really know how to use its mechanics for structured content, because when it does, it's often small spaces or just lots of combat one after the other, as opposed to really leveraging this incredibly freeform movement. Although it's worth saying that, it, that your character's core attack, the gravity kick, really uses and sells this feeling of omnidirectional falling as a weaponized thing where you more or less just fall at your opponent while kicking. It, it, it's the most obvious way to use gravity powers to kick something. And it, and it works very well in this game. Most of the time, it'll be your default move. It combines this sense of space that you must master to play the game well in the sense of like quickly understanding your position, everyone else's position relative to you, no matter what unusual angle you'll be at. You kick something, you bounce back off it a little bit, and then you must have quickly reorientate yourself and work out what you need to aim at next. Because you are your own projectile in this game. Sometimes you have to place yourself in the right angle because enemies have a weak spot that you need to get, you know, behind them, kind of under them to be able to hit properly. And that all just, you, you get rewarded for getting familiar with the movement system. And it takes a while to really get the hang of it, which actually ties really well in with the story of the game, not to get too much on this track. When the main character, Kat, starts out, she's unsure of her powers and unsure of herself, and the natural disorientation that her powers have makes you as the player feel a little bit unsure about stuff a lot of the time. As you progress and she gets more confident, these powers naturally become much more easy to use because you've gotten used to them in the spaces. Meta-narrative, where the player's unease translate, it reflects the character's unease. It's very nice, very neat. So you mentioned, which I agree with, that the game doesn't necessarily know how to leverage the movement. Did you enjoy the speedrunning sections? Some of them. So having played a lot of it on the Vita and the PS4, the way that the slide mechanic works on the Vita required both thumbs on the touchscreen and you couldn't use an analog stick to move. You had to rotate the console. Oh, that sounds horrible. It was, especially for a game that you want to play on a bus, maybe. Yeah. But on PS4, where you have much finer control of the actual movement using the sticks themselves, the sliding actually becomes a lot of fun, even though it was something that I dreaded in the original game. Um, the challenges mostly were pretty good, and I liked that they were mostly like in the real environment, as opposed to being these abstract far out courses that don't exist in the context of the game. And they really emphasize that go to where you need to go, reorientate yourself, find the next bit. Yeah, so the navigation ones were excellent. There are a number of combat ones, which after a long time of playing this game, I started to like, but for the most part in my first like two playthroughs of this game, I did not enjoy them very much. I should say, I've played this game a lot. I've played it in English and Japanese on both Vita and PS4, so I'm fairly familiar with it. And if the combat sections felt bad to me for multiple playthroughs, it's not indicative of a pleasant thing. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Or perhaps not a well-taught thing. Yeah, from memory, I don't feel like you get much more than kick the enemy to kill them. And there definitely is a lot of strategizing and just understanding how to chain attacks together because the way you approach clusters of enemies dictates how well you're going to go through them. Yeah, there's a lot of like working, trying to prioritize and work out what is currently a viable target. And there are a few enemies that you have to strike them from the opposite angle they approach you at. So you have to go from behind them, which can be when you're not used to the system can be very frustrating because your powers are great for large scale movement. But they're 
quite bad for very small scale movement, which was what combat often asks of you, which is an interesting balance, I guess. Whereas Infamous sort of separated its movement from its combat entirely, Gravity Rush is really trying to make everything about the space and how you navigate it, which I thought was really interesting how much it focused on this one good premise, even though that sometimes meant it forced you into situations it wasn't suited for. I think for the most part, even the unfun sections made the game better because, you know, it made you appreciate the open world more. I just wish it wasn't quite as punishing because some of those sections are very punishing. Some of the long tunnel traversal sections can be kind of punishing. And the stealth sections can be, well, often very easy if you work out how to, the game wants you to do them. I've sort of like a lot of stealth sections, um, sort of weirdly abstract and needlessly punishing when you don't quite understand the system that they're presenting to you. So Gravity Rush is a real success when it comes to creating a really great sense of movement, a space that's desired to move around into, but its struggles are really more around what content do you create for this kind of system other than just navigating it and finding things in your own free time. And especially since Gravity Rush wants to tell a structured story, it has to have a structured set of actions as opposed to perhaps some other games. Does that match up with about your experience of the game as well? Yeah. I will also add, though, that the developers did a really good job at designing the world. It wasn't just a token, oh, and, and it's really fun to walk upside down. It genuinely was interesting. It wasn't just a flat, or it, it wasn't even just mirrored buildings, because that's one of the easy things you can do for the bottom of a world, just have the buildings upside down or have weird rock formations. They made very interesting geometry on the bottom that was mostly sensible and very fun to traverse. Yeah, it was lots of pipes, lots of engines, lots of things that seem like they make sense at the bottom of a building floating through the air. Kudos to them and really interesting movement system. Our next game also engenders a great sense of space. The Witcher 3 is a 2013 CD Projekt Red developed open world RPG where you play as a magical merc. You might remember this description from the last episode because we also discussed it in the last episode. So The Witcher 3 is a very enormous, very lovely open world that has a high focus on narrative content. Of the games that we've discussed, probably has the most emphasis on a mode of transport known as fast travel by many people. If you're not familiar with fast travel, it's the process of instantly teleporting more or less to another location within the game, usually that you've already gone to. And it's a little bit controversial as to the value it brings to a space or not. What do you think about this? I think that at some point when a world is as large, when a world on offer is as large as the one offered in The Witcher 3, fast travel is just nice to have. I think a fast travel is quality of life. I do. I don't think a game needs to have it, but I think it's a quality of life in the way that indoor plumbing is now a quality of life kind of thing. Oh, that's a really interesting level of not necessity, but sort of necessity by default, I guess, for many people. You get what I mean, though. I do. It's sort of a very two worlds sort of situation and not as in the game two worlds. It is a necessity for a world as big as The Witcher 3. But when you constantly fast travel places as opposed to walking to them, you don't get to know the environments and the world as much. And that can really make the world feel more abstract 
which for a game like The Witcher 3 that's pours in so much love and attention into making all the spaces realistic and have like a genuine sense of place, the impact of fast travel in that kind of world is that you don't learn to navigate it as a world, unlike Gravity Rush or unlike Infamous, which both have fast travel systems, I believe, but they also like very much emphasize you can just go places anyway without these systems. In The Witcher 3, I would possibly dread having to manually travel everywhere. Okay, so on the flip side to this is that you do counteract, or rather counterbalance the need for fast travel for expedient gameplay with just world design, spacing out your fast travel points. A lot of the quests and interesting locations in The Witcher 3 don't happen near a fast travel location. It's not far from one, doesn't require to travel more than, say, five to ten minutes out of the way normally. But this does mean that what happens is you get familiar with certain hub locations, I guess? Because, you know, you travel there, you travel away from it. You travel there, you travel away from it. You, you get familiar with the surrounds. And then as you go further out from these kinds of hubs, you get less and less familiar. Is, is that a balance that's acceptable? I mean, I think that there is, there's always going to be something like that. And I think that The Witcher 3 probably strikes the best balance that a world like that can really have. Because I definitely do like know certain points really well and know how to navigate individual towns. And they want to sell scale a lot. And I think that just inevitably, if you're trying to sell a large scale, you can't really expect a player to learn that much space intimately. Like we were talking about Gravity Rush 2, Gravity Rush 1, sorry, and how it's not a very large open world. And because of that, you can really learn every place in that world really well. Learning The Witcher 3's world to that extent would be just too much information. I also think that you don't need to learn the world that well. Like It's very nice to be super comfortable in a world, to know an area like the back of your hand. But in a lot of The Witcher 3's case, it's a field or a forest. Is that bad of me to say? It's not bad of you to say, I don't think. And I mean, it does have some like more denser locations, such as the major city of Novigrad, I believe. And that space, if you'll be there long enough, that in theory, you should develop a sense of space for it. I always found it a bit difficult to really feel comfortable traversing compared to towns in other open world games. It felt a bit samey and indistinct. But that's getting into more world design than movement, I guess, at this point. So we should clarify a bit of how you move in The Witcher 3, I guess. So there are two main traversal methods, I guess. You've got your on-foot movement, which is more or less typical with other action RPGs. And you've got your horse movement, which is a lot faster, but a lot harder to control turning-wise and such. And it's honestly where the interesting bits of traversal come in, as far as The Witcher 3 is concerned. It sort of is, and it's sort of the opposite too. So the horse is more interesting and like, it tends to result in, like it's where you navigate between different towns. It's where you're thinking in a larger scale about, do I take this road or that road? So in that sense, it's more interesting, but it also automatically follows a path for you. And when it's following that path, it will not consume the horse's limited running energy or stamina as a normal person would call it. I was just about to say, we humans call that stamina. Well, I mean, everyone has to make a compromise at some point about their humanity and game design. Very fair. Horses with running energy is where you draw the line. That is apparently my line, yes. I'll keep that in mind. 
But anyway, navigating the world in The Witcher 3 is much more of a large scale endeavor. Like you look at a large, large map and you decide you want to go here and sort of plot out, you know, slightly larger sense than perhaps other games for the first half of it, let's say. And I assume I still haven't finished the game, but at a certain point, there's much less new places to explore. And so on average, you're just going back to pre-established locations and then a little minor offshoot from those as opposed to brand new entire areas. I I would imagine so, keeping in mind that I've played less of the game than you in this case. Really? Oh, okay then. Yeah, we we established this last episode. We did. Oh, well, that is bad form on my part. Sorry. (laughs) No. No, it's fine. You are the you are the resident Witcher 3 Wild Hunt expert. That's terrifying. Potentially extra so because you said 2013 game and it's a 2015 game. When did I say 2013 game? In the beginning oh. of this sequence. Well. It wasn't worth pointing out at the time, but now it feels relevant. <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. Ah, oh, I could have really shot. Point being... <laughs> The point being, I actually think that the horse and the automatic trail following is a really neat piece of game design. It is. From a number of different reasons. So the most practical one is for the player, you don't have to worry about where you're going. As long as the road leads in the right direction, your horse is going to take you there. That's, That's very, very nice. Great quality of life aspect. Slightly better than just getting on a cart and not having control of where you're going. And slower than just fast travel. But you get to see more of the terrain. So I really like that aspect of it. And it ties in a little bit to the point I made about Infamous and that low enough amount of input that it's easy to do. And in Witcher 3, you're traveling much further distances. And so maintaining the effortful navigation for that length of time would be perhaps just too much effort on the player's part. It also adds this feeling of, I'm just going to cut across this country feel to get a shortcut because oftentimes the roads are going to go around fields and forested areas that you can just ride through if you wanted gives that gives the player the feeling of ah i know exactly where i'm going i'm just going to take the shortcut it's perfectly fine that's a great feeling allows the game designers to just make sensible looking roads. i i don't know if sensible is the right word but it make it allows them to make roads that aren't just straight paths because it would be too hard for a player to follow a crooked one yeah The roads are really good. I mean, I'm not an engineering designer or like road designer or anything, but the roads in Witcher 3 don't feel like they're made for gameplay purposes. They feel like they'd be the natural roads that occur in those spaces, more or less. Whereas if a player had to follow them manually and in depth, they would be kind of tedious to follow, I imagine. Oh, yeah. You would have to compromise somewhere. You'd have to say that you don't have any benefit from following roads, and so players just run willy-nilly across the countryside, or your roads would end up looking straighter than they really should be, and yeah. I, I really like the balance that they struck with it. And like I talked about, like it's hard to know The Witcher 3's environments, but the roads help sort of give you some limitations on how much you need to absorb information-wise. If you know, like, as you play, you get an idea of where all the roads lead and go to and so you know the important road junctures as you progress and then when you get to them you stop needing to check the map to get to the next point you know like oh this road i should be turning left you may not have internalized what's in the forest ahead or that there's a small town to the side here but you may probably know that this road takes you to novigrad and this road takes you to white orchard let's say and there's also like a nifty compass that's helping tell you where to go and things but if you were to turn those features off you would still feel comfortable with 
with the road system, I think, as you progress through the game. And you have a mini map and is really helpful uh, if you don't want to pull out the actual map. If you roughly know where you're going, mini map can just point you in the right direction from there on. But yeah, The Witcher 3's navigation is sort of a means to an end rather than a core focus. And it using fast travel and systems like that and the horse navi- and the horses automatically following roads help emphasize that it's a means to an end. And it's easy to sort of go to The Witcher and be critical of its movement being less engaging than gravity rushes. But that's not the point. It's sort of not a completely unfair criticism because it can feel a bit monotonous going places in The Witcher because compared to the things that you go and do, getting there is much less enjoyable. It's about the destination, not the journey in The Witcher. Yeah. I mean, it is partially about the journey, like navigating like on horseback, getting that like lovely view of the landscape is a really pleasant feeling. But the quality of its quests and cutscenes is so high compared to the quality of its traversal that that mismatch sort of makes that less and less pleasant as the game progresses, I feel. I can see that. But you're saying it's not about the destination, it's about the journey, right? Yes. So, I mean, you were saying it's not about the journey, it's about the, the destination. Yeah, the saying is normally that it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. And this next game is very much about the journey. So... We're going to talk about Journey, the 2012 game developed by that game company, where you play as a character on a pilgrimage to climb to the top of a mountain. It's a very important game in uh, modern game history. It changed a lot of the way that we discussed games a little bit. It changed the amount in which we discussed games in certain contexts. A lot of people, for a lot of people, it was like a start of a change in the way that we think and discuss these games. It wasn't the only game that was part of that, but it was the big piece, I think. But we're not going to talk about about it in the ways that I think a lot of people did at the time. We're looking at it for its movement primarily. And it is a primarily movement focused game as it doesn't offer you many more mechanics than moving. Yeah, you have jump and you have chirp are your two main inputs alongside just moving from place to place. And the game, what really impressed me about my replay of the game just the other night for this was that it really uses changing your movement to tell a lot of its emotional tale. At various points in the game, when it wants you to feel vulnerable, you have parts of your scarf removed. And for every segment of scarf that you have, you can jump a little bit further and longer. And so the game starts off by giving you lots of these pieces and you end up being able to jump many times as far as you could at the start of the game very quickly. And then bit by bit, you get it taken away. Then you have to bear into the cold mountain that eats away at your scarf, stopping you from experiencing that joy of jumping as you please and things. And it's very simple, but the fact that movement is used throughout the entire experience to empower and to weaken you Specifically, just jumping is, I think, very distinctive compared to these other games. I'd like to point out, and we will focus on the movement, but it's not just the movement that changes. Like you said, the scarf is this visual metaphor. You you notice early on that your scarf gets longer, so you feel better the more you have of it. Losing it feels bad. The, The colors that come off of your character get dimmer, or even like the environment itself just gets dimmer the more you get into the game. Yeah. You start in a vibrant, rich, warm, sandy desert at the start of the game that your character really fits into. And as you progress, your coat slowly gets, like the whole game gets darker and bluer and cooler. Yep, but we're not harping on that. Uh, we are, you know, focusing on the movement. So while it 
is very much just move forward, back, left, right, and jump in terms of what you can do as movement. They do a lot to also give the movement itself character. There's a lot of sand in the game journey, and sliding down sand dunes is one of the most satisfying game experiences I've had in any game, let alone, yeah. So, the sli- was that the same for you? Yes, there's a specific, there's many moments where you slide in the sand, but there's a specific section of the game that has it's sort of maybe five or ten minutes of more or less constant sliding down that sort of sand slide alongside some sort of scarf dolphin creatures. Normally in other games, this kind of high speed sequence is a chase. In this one, it was an expression of joy, right? Like. You were celebrating. And the music, the Bacta was all joining it. Yeah, you had these creatures, these allies with you that were joining you in this massive rush and this massive high that comes right before the game slows down immensely and asks you to enter a stealth sequence, more or less. Not a very difficult stealth sequence, but it's one that you're more or less supposed to at least be spotted in once and suffer a loss of your movement a little bit in. It is, po- Yeah, it is possible to get through the stealth sequence without getting hit. Right. I believe it is, but I think it's safe to say that the the sequence was designed around you being caught at least once. I certainly did not manage to get through unscathed and it felt bad. (laughs) Yeah, it felt bad, not just because the music is terrifying when that happens and there's a lot of weight and there's a lot of stuff going on visually and musically to help that feel dreadful. But when you see your scarf get worn away after the game has made the visual connection between your ability to move and that scarf clear just feels dreadful. You feel so unempowered at that moment. And it's a great way to tie, I guess, the narrative point of the game into the core aspect of the game being just straight up movement, just straight up traversal of the game world. At the time, there was a lot of use of the phrase mechanics as metaphor. And I think this is a good example of that, where your ability to move and traverse and your ability to make progress in your journey, both mentally, because a lot of this is supposed to be a spiritual pilgrimage in the context of the narrative, but also your ability to actually physically progress forwards is impacted by these stressful events. And then I mean, I guess we should say at this point, maybe spoilers ahead. Mm -hmm. So spoilers, if you don't like spoilers, you should stop listening before I spoil this spoilery thing that can spoil you. That seems like enough time to say spoiler. I will also add and give people more time to react to this, that if you care or if you've heard about Journey and care about your first time experience through the game, stop, go and play it first before listening to this. It is worth it if you care about it. If you're of the mind that you're never gonna play it, then you have nothing to lose. Keep listening. It's also very short. I remembered it being a little bit longer than it was, but it's, what, two and a half hours at most? Yeah, I think first playthrough for me was four because I insisted on running around so much in the beginning. That was me as well. Because running around is fun. Running around is a very pleasant activity to engage in. And so is bashing that chirp button too. We mentioned before that uh, one of the things that Infamous Second Son did nicely is that it made moving more interesting by giving you complications, things to look out for and stuff like that. Journey manages to make movement interesting just through the act of joyous movement, of making you feel 
Like your jump is doing that much more than it really should, that making you feel like you're going that bit faster than you should and having an interesting world to explore. It really nails interesting movement without adding extra complicated mechanics on top of it. And what's really interesting is that the movement is also mostly unnecessary. Like the amount of times that you need to actually use the jump that the game provides you is almost minimal because in any situation you need to jump, it usually provides all the resources you need to bypass actually jumping or it puts you in a situation where you more or less have unlimited jump. And those are always super fun as well. But okay, we have uh, danced around it, and this is probably enough time. If you want to jump into the spoiler section, like now's a good time. So you've had all this trials and tribulation, climbing up this mountain. You've ended up having all your scarf worn away, been unable to move. Your progress has been ground to a complete halt, and the screen fades to white. And you have what is maybe one of the most joyous moments in games, aside from the sand dream moment that is also in this game, which is... You sort of ascend to heaven is how it's sort of depicted. And you fly up the last part of the mountain surrounded in white scarves and the scarf sea creatures and all these things that supply you with the energy to keep flying. And you can just progress forwards at a high speed, not mindlessly, because there's just enough spaces between things that you can like need to like think about where to go next, but it's not a mental task or a puzzle. I think I failed once in this sequence and actually fell and then got caught by a a, a scarf thing going up again. Yeah, like it helped, like it brings you up if you fail more or less. It, it felt very like, oops, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, the game is so nice. Yeah, because at this point, you've suffered all the suffering that's supposed to happen. It wants you to have this exhilarating ride at the mountain. And so in Journey, like, the whole way through from start to end is using its movement to convey its feelings and emotions, which I think is really strong. And Gravity Rush had a little bit of that. We said it like the main character was getting used to her powers and at the start they're disorientating and that by the end you feel comfortable with them as does she. Gravity Rush gives a small amount of exhilaration but you find those moments on your own normally in Gravity Rush whereas Journey is a very directed experience. This is where you're supposed to be happy. This is where you're supposed to be afraid. This is where you're supposed to be sad. This is where you're supposed to be happy again. And it's directed very well. That, that is the behind the scenes. That's what's happening, but it's directed very well. Yes, it's directed incredibly well. And yeah, by using movement, it's core tool. It's it's being used in the same way that other film that films might use camera angles almost or in panning shots in certain ways to convey feelings. This is a game that's really using its tool set to tell its story that is unique to games. Like you cannot make Journey the movie. You cannot make Journey the comic book. Well, you could. It would probably last 10 minutes. But you're using fundamentally different tools to do that whereas journey is distinctly using this video game tool of player interaction and its movement specifically yeah in in many other games movement is a means to an end and in, in journey harking back to what we said at the end of the witcher it really is about the journey not the destination specific. And I guess our next sort of final game, we're going to really discuss the value of movement itself in games and the value of spaces in games, I guess, to some extent. So Persona 3 was a 2006 JRPG developed by Atlas, which is about the daily life of a high school student by day and by night, a dungeon crawling hero. And it was remade in 2009 for the PSP. And it's this pair of games, which is the same game fundamentally, that I want to discuss, or we want to discuss, I should say, because 
they removed one thing from the game more than anything else, which is they removed the ability to navigate the world as a character. The entire game is reduced down to visual simplifications that are more or less menus that you can navigate with a cursor as opposed to navigatable environments. Cutscenes that took place in the world with animated cutscenes are now replaced with visual novel style cutscenes instead. And it was a big critique of the game at the time, but it sort of is a great way to discuss the value of movement because Persona 3 Portable on average, thank, according to how long to beat, takes 67 hours to complete. Comparing that to the normal Persona 3, which takes about between 80 and 82 hours, depending on which version you're looking at to finish. And that's a huge difference in time. And so it raises this interesting question of how much value is gained from navigating the world and is that valuable for all games equally personally for persona 3 and for the persona series these games have always been fundamentally about characters and character interaction so reducing it to a visual novel stops the game being about a world and being about character interaction whereas persona 4 and 5 in their full versions and persona 3 in its full version end up being much more about the space making an impression and the world making an impression and the characters also do so, but by reducing it to just the character interaction as Persona 3 Portable does, you end up with a feeling that's much more about your character relationships and the space is more or less secondary to the experience. You weren't able to play a lot of this, but how did you feel about what you did have a chance to play? I felt that I would love one of the functions, even if I did have a world to walk through, which is tap a button and see every interactable in the sea in the space you're in and that was carried forward and that's just there in persona 5 i believe like every interactable has an icon over it in persona 5 from memory um not every interactable but every like social link the number of the interactable things have that other them yeah that's right every like important thing has one but in persona 4 only social links were highlighted and you know bulletin boards and what and uh posters or whatever you had to like walk up to it to get a prompt and realize you can interact with it yeah so there's a huge like just ease of use to the fact that it's reduced the entire game to just the things you can interact with more or less it, it definitely communicates a lot more in the limited amount of space it has about what you can do in the space if that makes sense. Uh, there are definitely odd things about it as well, though. So one of the things that struck me, and I'm pretty sure this would be less of an issue the more I played it, but it definitely struck me at the beginning of the game, is by the time I entered the first combat, I had no idea what my main character like was supposed to look like, and entering the combat made me go, whoa, that's him? Because you don't see your main character as someone you move around the world at that point. At that point, you have just gone through 15-ish minutes of clicking on icons and responding to text options and reading a visual novel without any implication of what your main character is supposed to look like. You see him slash her at the beginning in, in character selection for all of 10 seconds, depending on how long you spend on that screen, but that's it. You don't see your main character until combat at that point. And that was weird for me. And that sort of embodiment, I guess, of a lot of the issues this has is that you can spend a lot of time in this world and not know how something really looks. And then perhaps the game shows you it in a different, like in a still shot or in a battle sequence or something. And then you realize like, oh, that's what this is supposed to look like. And so there's a lot of, you're sort of de-associated from the world in a lot of ways through this change. And while the 13 or so hour time difference to finish these games 
is not solely thanks to the ability to navigate the world only through menus because combat's a little bit faster. The fact that it's all visual novel presentation means that there's no animation between text boxes, which means that every cutscene goes a little bit faster as well. But it does raise this really interesting question, which is what is the value of navigating an environment versus doing what the game would probably interpret as its core thesis? Because if you cut the word out of a Persona game, it can still be a Persona game. But if you cut the characters out of a Persona game, it's really not. Yep. And I don't necessarily think this example answers that question because it's a really good question, but it's definitely a stepping stone towards answering it. It's one example of what you can do with and without this game world for you to navigate. I don't have a, uh, experience in Persona 3, the base game. I only have a couple of hours in Portable, in Persona 3 Portable, the cut down one that we're talking about. But one of the things that Persona 3 Portable does is, aside from just navigating via icons on a space, you can hit the square button to bring up a menu of all areas that you can access at any given time. That wasn't in the base game, is that right? That's not in the base game. Yep. You had a limited form of quick travel, much like Persona 4, but not quite as advanced as the one on display here. Now, Persona 5 kind of finds the middle ground between that and offers you the full navigatable world where you can run through it and talk to everyone. You can see your character, but also gives you that quick travel menu with basically the same amount of freedom as you might find in Persona 3 Portable. Very much so. So I think, yeah, Persona 5 is sort of that nice, balance of you can more or less instantly get to the person you want to interact with because you still see and experience the world through cutscenes, through all the first times you go to places it feels like a world. It wasn't a world that I spent a lot of time like making the big effort to navigate a lot, but it was there. It felt much more alive than this one because it was there. It, it It's also worth noting that even with the fact that it was a small world, I still found myself doing things like travel to a region, travel to a space in a region, and then travel to my destination because it would put me at an exit closer to the person I was looking for. Yeah, and when you've got these options, there's no reason to do to skip out all those things. So it's interesting we say this after sort of critiquing, or me critiquing specifically, I guess, as opposed to other people, but The Witcher 3 at the start, like you don't get to know these environments. I think all these steps that you take in like your tight narrowing down of the quick travel in Persona 5 actually help you get to know the world in a sort of limited way. Roundabout way, at least knowing how things connect to each other. Yeah, like you know how everything connects and you know that what's in each individual space, you just don't go through the effort of walking through that entire space each time. So I guess bringing it back to Persona 3 Portable specifically, which is what we're targeting and discussing precisely, I think that it changes the game experience. I do. I genuinely do. The The visual novel presentation aside, the way you approach any space is to go, what am I meant to do? And can I go do that immediately? You don't have that. I'll walk and I'll go. I'll walk to the area and look and see, oh, those are NPCs I've never talked to. I wonder what they have to say. You, you run out of that novelty, that curiosity very quickly because you can be so targeted in trying to get to your goal. That's 100% the experience, having played through it yeah, I, two or so times. I don't know that that makes it a worse experience because a lot of times those NPCs don't offer that much more interesting. They flesh the world out for sure. One of the brilliant things about a lot of JRPGs like this is that those NPCs that you randomly encounter have a narrative throughout the entire game. This is a game where you're playing through a full year 
for this character's life. And there are NPCs that go through a year's worth of character development in this time. You stand a potential to lose out on some of that. And you lose a lot of it. That doesn't necessarily add to the game. I'm not going to say it doesn't add to the game. I'm going to say that it doesn't add to the game in a significant way. So I played through both Persona 3 Portable and Persona 3 FES, which is the slightly enhanced version. And it is very distinct, like that feeling of space and that feeling of getting to know this world and that feeling of meeting characters. There are a few like random NPCs that when you see them in the world, you see them in slightly different places and positions and you wonder what's going on and you ask them and you find this silly subplot involving an NPC's love of cats that doesn't have any meaning to the game. It's not like it's a quest. It's just there is extra life around you right uh I, I take it back i don't mean that it doesn't add to the game i mean that it doesn't contribute to the main plot that's what i meant yeah it doesn't do the main plot or the main core experience which is the social link system and getting to know characters in this world having developed characters definitely adds to your game like if you were trying to try and throw this system onto another game like if we threw this onto journey it would completely destroy the experience because journey is not a character driven game if we threw it onto the witcher 3 it might survive it a little bit i personally would probably actually get a lot more out of that experience of The Witcher 3 than I do at the moment, but most other people would really hate that because they are there for this experience of a world and a space, not just this experience of a group of characters. So we've looked at five games so far. Um, we looked at Infamous Second Son, which has an interesting interactive world that's powers sort of encourage you to pay attention to the world in different ways. Gravity Rush, which has a very distinctive world whose omnidirectional falling helps you. It's more about a sense of space than it is like the challenge of getting to a place per se. And, and it's just well designed to encourage exploration and therefore movement in your exploration. It is encouraging movement at all place because you know that wherever you go there'll be a little thing there or at least a nice view at the worst. The Witcher 3 uses its movement to make the world seem expansive and large and often has very simple movement so that you can get on to getting to the destination as opposed to enjoying the journey itself. Giving guidance to make you feel like you're part of the world as well where you're following the roads you're not just herring off into the woods like some crazy madman on horseback. Unless that's specifically what you want to do. In which case you can do that. And it fits both. It's really good. And Journey is all about using movement to convey more than just movement. It's using movement to convey emotions. And it's using movement as a tool of storytelling. And then Persona 3 and 3 Portable kind of question how much movement is necessary to enjoy an experience like this. Understanding when you might be able to cut it out. It can't have been an easy decision for the developers to make to decide, oh, we need to cut something out of this game. Maybe we cut out the playable character in the overworld. It was a massive compromise um, and it was very unpopular with a lot of fans. And it sort of has led Persona 3 to being this awful position of having no definitive version. Apparently they were going to try and port 4 in a similar manner, but they decided the compromise was too great for that specific experience. Because 4 is a little bit more focused on getting to know this small town. The town itself has a lot of character in 4. I don't know if that's necessarily the case in 3. It's not the case in 3. Yeah, mind you, I haven't finished the game, but I never got the impression that 
the main characters were very attached to the town that they live in in three whereas the characters in four really attached to the town they live in yeah the characters in three they all have a lot of history in the town and the town has a lot of lore and backstory to it but there isn't anything about existing in the town that is particularly interesting or appealing it's just a city yeah and so those are five examples of games that handle traversal in different and hopefully interesting ways and hopefully we've covered a bit about how you can look at traversal as more than just get from point a to point b and traversal is a really huge topic and different genres approach it differently we've sort of focused a lot on open worlds and then rpgs and also journey as well but this discussion would be very different if we were looking at mario odyssey and platformers it's very different if we were to look at pc adventure games there are lots of very different approaches to this topic and we encourage you to try and think about how how traversal works in all sorts of different contexts, as opposed to just the ones that we've raised here today. Please get back to us on what you think about this. If you have any strong opinions one way or the other, if you think that there is a game that we really should have talked about that did movement and traversal in an interesting way that we didn't cover, please let us know. Yeah, we're always happy to hear your thoughts and feedback. You can contact us via many methods, all of which are in the show notes, and we try and get back to people as soon as we reasonably can. We really enjoyed all your feedback and comments on the last episode, and we hope that that'll continue on from here on out. We'll be back in another month's time with a new episode. Thank you for listening. The song Random Thoughts by Audio Being are used for the start and end credits here is used under the attribution non-commercial license. Find links to Audio Binger and our social media in the show notes. 